This morning we are going to be working our way through Luke chapter 6 verses 24 through 26. Over the next couple of weeks we're just going to be in various places that over the last year I have found myself reading and compelled and, and often what I do is I'm reading my Bible and I see a passage that convicts me. I take some notes on that and then I put it in a folder to move on uh, to study whatever we are in at the time. For the last two years it's been Ephesians. And as we have a small break between starting the book of Mark and finishing the book of Ephesians, I'm just kind of going through that folder and that file and those things in my life and uh, preaching on those passages uh, as the next couple weeks come before we break into the book of Mark starting in January. That's our normal practice. So this is a little abnormal for us to, to randomly have a passage in the morning that we're going through. Uh, but what is not abnormal for us is to go through that passage, to seek to hear what God has said, and to understand the truth of that passage. So that's our goal for this morning, that we would really hear and feel the weight of Jesus' words in Luke 6, 24 through 26. So let me pray for us, and then we will begin uh, looking at those passages together. Father, we thank you that you are a God who is good and gracious. We thank you that you are a God who is holy and righteous. We thank you, Lord, that we can depend completely upon you. Thank you, Lord, that your word is true. Thank you, Lord, that your word is not uh, just for some people at some times, but you and grace have preserved your word through the apostles and the prophets by your spirit for your people for all time. I pray that you would give grace this morning, that we would be those who hear your word and that the, the word of your grace by your spirit would work in our hearts and we would be those who seek you and seek to live as disciples of you, that you would use us to make disciples, that you might bear fruit in our lives and in the lives of our valley uh, in hundreds of folds, Father. We thank you for your grace and your faithfulness. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. This morning I want you to consider the pains of life. As I say, the pains of life, what is it you think about? Maybe even just take a note on the top of your paper. If I, if I said the pains of life, what are the pains of life? What comes to your mind? What are the things that you say, this is pain. This is what a painful life looks like. This is what a difficult life is. What do you think are the true pains of life? You might have written down some things that Jesus says are what the happy have. Jesus says the happy are, and we've been working our way through with Danny, the, the Beatitudes. This morning, we're turning to Luke, looking what follows the Beatitudes in Luke. But if you look with me at chapter 6 of Luke, starting at verse 20, you'll see very familiar words that Danny's led us through. If you haven't heard those messages, I would encourage you to get online and look up Danny. And, uh, well, look on our website. If you just look up Danny, you won't find much because he's an elusive man. But on our website, you'll find many sermons preached on the Beatitudes by Danny, and I'd encourage you to listen to those. And as you have listened to those, Faith Bible Church, I'm sure these words will mean much to you, starting in Luke 6, verse 20. And he lifted up his eyes to his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. And blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, 
and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, leap for joy, and behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. And Jesus says the happy life is the life of the poor, the hungry, the mourning, or those who weep, and those who are persecuted now. A complete contrary to what the world might say is those, are those who are suffering, those, are those who have no hope, those are those who would never be called happy, never be called blessed, because they are the exact opposite of what we think is blessing and happiness. And in Luke, Jesus doesn't just leave the Beatitudes to themselves, but he gives us a contrast to declare what does it mean to have a life of pain? What does it mean to live a truly painful life on earth, a life that you should be aware is going to bring you pain? You look with me at Luke chapter 6, verse 24. He says, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. And woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. What does a painful life look like? Jesus would describe it as the, wit, the rich who are full, who laugh, and who are accepted by all. He says this is the life that you need to be warned about. This is the life that actually is a woe to people. Woe meaning, like blessed, means happy. Woe means pain. Woe to you. Maybe you've said it before in a moment of drama. Woe to me. Woe is my life. Right? Not like, whoa, did you see that? But like, woe is me. Right? My parents won't let me get a Nintendo Switch. Woe to me. Right? I can't have ice cream for breakfast. Woe to me. Right, children? These are the woes of our life. So difficult. As adults, we might too see woes as things that Jesus doesn't say they are. And this morning, uh, we're going to look through these four woes these four pains, these four dangers that Jesus warns. It is not these who will be happy. It is these who must be warned that their life is one that will be full of pain. What really brings you happiness and pleasure in life might not be what you expect. And what really brings you pain and agony in life might not be what you expect. Because these four woes have a numbing effect. Uh, like many things in our society, though they affect you and they might be internally destroying you, uh, they have an effect on you to numb you. They are things that give you pleasure, things that give you satisfaction, things that make you feel like everything is okay when really they might be destroying you inside. And these four woes are like that. The danger of comforts and contentment in this life is a lack of reality of what life truly is. The Beatitudes proclaim that those who are poor, those who are hungry, those who are weeping, and those who are persecuted have a better understanding of what the world really is. Because it is more easy for them to see the desperateness of earth in sin and to recognize the hope of life in Christ. But he says, woe to the rich. This is not the only place Jesus says this. Maybe you're familiar with uh, the parable of the soils in Matthew chapter 12. 
You can see at the top of your handout the conclusion of that as Jesus tells this parable of the different soils and seed thrown out, the seed being the gospel and the soil being people and the Holy Spirit being that which causes the gospel to take response. But he talks about the hearts of people and the function of people and how the gospel is thrown to many. But there are those who do not hear the gospel rightly. They become confused. In Matthew 13, 22, Jesus describes those who were thrown amongst the thorns. Those who were th- thrown amongst the thorns are the ones who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. There are those who have heard the gospel, but because they're hearing of the gospel in the context of the world, the cares of the world and the riches of the world and the deceitfulness of those riches choke out or bring pain, suffocate slowly the truth of the gospel which they have heard. These are grave warnings of Jesus. They are not popular warnings in our time. In our time, it's very popular to tell people what make them happy is a little more wealth, a little more food, a little more comfort, and that there would be those who accept them, those that have a group that surround them. But Jesus says, woe to those who find their hope and their comfort in those things. He says there are those who hear the gospel and those things choke them out. Those things bring about pain in such a way that it's unnoticed and it slowly suffocates them until they are completely fruitless and they are merely those who heard the gospel. We don't want to hear these kinds of messages because I would compel that you are the rich. You are the full. You are those who laugh. And maybe, maybe you are those who are easily accepted by all. We need to hear this. Number one, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation or your comfort. Blessed are the poor because theirs will be the kingdom of God. But pained, Jesus says, are the rich because they have found all the comfort they can. In Luke 12, 15 through 21, Jesus makes a warning of this kind of comfort, this kind of wealth. What does it mean to be the rich? What does it mean to be those who are rich? How does it bring about pain? Luke 12, 15 through 21, Jesus describes it. It is a unsatisfiable desire for more. Despite their wealth, they don't want less. They want more. They find their comfort not in the coming hope of Christ, but in the coming potential of more. To be wealthy. And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist of the abundance of possessions. Jesus' warning is, take care and be on your guard. Right? Have your guard set. Because one's life does not consist of his possessions. He says, be aware of this. And then he goes to give a parable to describe the warning. Verse 16, he says, and he told them a parable. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store up all my goods and all my grains. 
And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. What does Jesus warn? He says, if you covet possession, if you find your hope in the abundance of possessions, you are missing what truly is the purpose of your life. Your possessions can't save you. Their satisfaction is fleeting. Your wealth and prosperity is a deception of security. It causes you to think everything will be fine. You tell yourself, I could relax and I could eat and I can drink and I could be merry. I would say there are many false gospels going on in our world that tell you if you could build a bigger downline, you could have people under you that would give you wealth and prosperity, and then you could relax and eat and drink and be married. If you could only get that promotion, then finally you could relax and eat and drink and be married. If you could only make the right investments, you could only have the right ducks in a row, then finally you could relax and eat and drink and be married. But notice what it says of this man. It says there was a certain rich man, a man who had rich land, a man who was a land of wealth, a land of prosperity. And he had a particular year that was more prosperous. And he starts preaching to himself as his year was prosperous. What did he preach to himself? Look at verse 17. He preaches lies to himself. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. What does he tell himself? I've got nothing. Do I have anything? What am I going to do with all of these crops? I have nowhere to store them. I have nothing to do with them. Woe is me. I am without. But if you look quickly at verse 18, you can see he is not discontent because he lacks capacity. He is discontent with his capacity. He's discontent with his own barns. He says in verse 18, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store my grain and my goods. He says, well, I have nowhere to put this. What am I going to do? I'm going to tear down my barns where I store my goods and grains. And I'm going to build build bigger ones so I can store my goods and grains. What's happening to him? How is it that he is convincing himself he has nothing? Maybe his neighbors keep posting on Instagram their new barns that they're building. And he's just thinking, I don't even have a barn compared to that. Maybe Joe next door keeps building more and more. And he keeps thinking, man, look what Joe's doing with all his extra crops. Maybe it didn't take social media for him. Maybe because he had the capacity of Barnes and he was already wealthy and he saw so much before him, he assumed, I have the wealth, I could build these bigger. But what did he preach to himself? I have nowhere. I have nothing. The rich man convinced himself he was impoverished. How? Because he didn't have as much as he knew he could. He didn't have as much as he knew was available to him. So he convinced himself he lived in poverty. Brothers and sisters, we are in this exact position. We are rich people. We know this. 
We could look at the world and we could find many in the world who live in ways that we would see as archaic and uncivilized. Without indoor plumbing, with homes that don't have drywall but wood slats, with dirt on their floor and children with scattered clothing, tattered rather, our children have scattered clothing all over their room, but their children have tattered clothing with barely any. Their rooms aren't a mess because they have no toys to scatter in them and no clothing to pile on the floor instead of in their dresser and no dresser because they don't have enough clothes to put in them. We convince ourselves we're poor because we look and we do not see the world, but we see our neighbor. And we see that their barns are getting bigger. And we see the potential of a bigger barn. And we start to convince ourselves I have nowhere to store my things. What can I do? And maybe like this man, we say, this is what I'll do. I'll tear it all down and rebuild it. I'll make it even bigger and better. I can make it what I want. But God said to him, verse 20, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Your possessions cannot save you. And that gaping feeling inside you that tells you you will be rich and eat and drink and be merry if you only had is a lie. You know it's a lie. You've believed the lie and followed through on the lie many, many times. You have purchased it. You have bought it. You have had it until the next one comes out and then you were dissatisfied with it. You purchased it. You bought it. And you used it. And then you noticed there was something better available and it dissatisfied you. On that day which you purchased it, you said, I will eat and I will drink and I will be merry. And just a few weeks later, you thought, I have nowhere to store my goods. You've told yourself the same lie. I've told myself the same lie. Christian, American Christian, Menifee Christian, Faith Bible Menifee members, we are the rich. Do not be deceived. You have ample places to store your goods. We have much wealth. We are very blessed. And we are in grave danger. Should we think that is our comfort? Should we believe that that's what will give us hope? Shall we set our hope in the unsecurity of riches? Should we put ourselves in saying, if I could only have bigger and better, then finally I would be satisfied. The pain to the wealthy is you will never be satisfied. He says to the rich, you've already received your comfort because its comfort is perishing. You've received your comfort again and again and again, and you have found yourself not comforted, but longing for more. Woe to the rich. Woe to us. 1 Timothy 6, 2-10 through 10 goes on to communicate as we look at 1 Timothy 6 in your handout or you could turn there in your Bible. 1 Timothy 6, 
You have verse 6 there, starting in verse 6, but I'm going to read from verse 2 for context. He says, teach and urge these things. As he's closing the book, he's saying, teach and urge these things. Look back at these things. I want to encourage you to read the book of 1 Timothy. That's what he's talking about. Chapters 1 through 5, he's saying, teach and urge these things. And if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and he understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil, suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. And I want to encourage you, how do you know what false teaching is? One, you go back and you read 1 Timothy 1 through 5, where he says, teach these things. What is he talking about? Those things. But then he summarizes false teachers and he says, they are those who stir controversy. They stir envy. They stir dissension. They create slander. They cause friction among people. And we want to stop there and we want to say any kind of controversy, anyone who's not accepted by all is not doing Christ's work. But woe to you when you're accepted by all. How does he summarize this? Well, in the end of verse 5, he says, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. They use their religion and cause fights and quarrels and slanders and envy because they imagine that they're gathering together, that they're pursuing of moral righteousness, that they're living as a church is a means of financial freedom financial gain, more wealth in the world. And he says, these are those who, who spread fights among men because they look at the things of God as being what will give them the possessions of earth. Rather, in verse 6, he says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Pangs being the pain of emotional distress, depression, anxiety. Many pangs, the, the keep shooting into you where in one minute you're emotionally fine, everything's okay, and the next minute it's like the whole world is falling apart and you're not sure why. You don't know what's going on. Why is it that I went from immediately content to immediately depressed? immediately destroyed why was it that everything was sunshiny day and now everything is death metal music what is going on and he says this is the deceitfulness of riches this is what drives you into senseful senseless and harmful desires this is what plunged people into ruin and destruction it is the love of wealth the love of possession it is a satisfying, or rather it is a craving that cannot be satisfied, but can drive you away from the truth and pierce you with pain. False teachers want to teach that there is a prosperity in Christ that Christ never contained on earth. 
there is a wealth and health and prosperity for Christians that all Christians should expect. That Christ and Paul and the apostles and your Christian brothers and sisters in the early church didn't experience. They want to promote that there is a comfort in this world where you can find heaven on earth. But Jesus says, woe to you who are rich, for you've received your consolation. Your comfort has already been given. If you look for your hope in the comfort of the world, you've already received your comfort and hope. So what should we do then if we are rich? Right? You're probably sitting there thinking, great, Jake. So you've convinced us that we're all rich. You've convinced us that our lives are going to be pain because of it. And like a good preacher, what are you going to do next? Ask for all our money? How pitiful is it that in our world we could speak of these things and then in the next turn to say and plead for people to have the faith to give their wealth and possessions? How horrible that if you are not a regular member of Faith Bible Church, you might come this morning being so jaded toward the church, not of just your own doing, but because of many men who preach in such a way that my next step was going to be to ask for your money. Christians, this is the society we live in. This is the fear of us that we might be pled with for our possessions. And the church has decayed in such a way that there are many who would call themselves Christ's. And they would simply preach about your wealth and prosperity just to try to take it from you. The answer is not that you must give up all of your goods. And you might be thinking, what about Luke 18, 24 through 47? 27 rather, the rich young ruler. Isn't that what Jesus said? Isn't that what he told them? That he must give away and sell all that he can have? Isn't that the only way to hope and prosperity? I know of a cult not too far from us in, in the outskirts of San Diego that bring people in on this very principle and they say you must sell all the things you have and live in our commune. And be with us. And from experience of being there and, and buying at a restaurant they run and hearing conversations and talking points and other things, I know the reality is there is all kinds of immorality going on there. There are a few who use it to their power and there are many who are deceived and pained. Some would teach that because you were rich, the only thing you can do is what Jesus said to the rich young ruler, sell everything you have. Give it all up. It's the only way to be saved. Some of our own prophets of our own time, YouTube stars, proclaim the same to you. They say, how can you truly be happy, sell all your possessions and live off the grid? If you could only get out of city water and city electric and get some pigs and a farm, then your life would be easy and great. Clearly, they have never farmed. <laughs> Clearly, they have no idea. Clearly, their money is made by posting about it on YouTube and selling it to you. They're not sustained by what they're doing. And if they are, they're too busy doing it to post to you about it on YouTube. The gospel is not sell all you have. The gospel is not get rid of everything and be poor on earth. The gospel is that you are the poor in spirit. You are those who should weep and mourn because of sin. 
You are those who will be persecuted because of Christ. It is Christian. If you are Christ, your hope is in eternity. And you find no matter your wealth or your status, this earth is a hopeless place because the sin in man. And you know that once ruled in you and still fights for your heart. The Beatitudes are not declaring that you must sell all your possessions, but you must recognize your poverty, as Danny has beautifully preached over the last few months. In Luke 18, 24, the believers ask, they say, if this is the case, if it is hard for a rich man to get into heaven, Jesus, after speaking to the rich young ruler, says, how difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard said, who then can be saved? They understood Jesus' illustration. A camel is a large animal. Maybe you've never seen one. Maybe you have. Maybe you took your kids to a zoo. A needle is a very small thing that fixes clothing. Again, you might have never seen one, but you're aware of what it is. The illustration is not lost on you. He says it is easier for a rich person... Rather, harder for a rich person to get into heaven than it is for a camel, thousands of pound animal, to get through the eye of a needle, a tiny little thing. Now, some have tried to explain this to way to just say it's difficult. And they've come up with this little gate that existed that camels could crawl through. And it was possible, but it was very difficult. But I want to say that's not Jesus's point. He's not his point is not that you can humble yourself in such a way that you can crawl through the gate. In verse 27, he says, but he said, what is impossible with man? His point is not, it's just hard, but you can do it if you try hard. His point is, it is impossible for rich men to get saved. But what is impossible with man is possible with God. It's impossible for a poor man to get saved. But it's much more feasible in the eyes of men because he already understands his poverty. Our world says this. Religion is a crutch. It's to help the weak. The rich don't need it. And that's the burden of the rich man. He can convince himself of such things. That he's okay. Jesus does not say that it's just really hard. He says it's impossible for a rich man to do it. He can't buy his way there. But he says that what is impossible with man is possible with God. And so again, you might still be asking, what do I do then? Praise God, we have 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 through 19. What do you do if you find yourself as the rich in this world? What do you do when you know you are the wealthy? We have a command directly to the wealthy, Christian. This was not written to you, but it was written for you. As you live here in Menifee, in suburbia, in America, in this year, this decade, with this wealth, this verse was written for you. 1 Timothy six seventeen through 19 As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Not haughty, 
not arrogant, right? You don't think of haughty as this. You think of haughty as the person you're interested in. Ooh, look at that haughty. That's not the kind of haughty he's talking about. He's saying to be arrogant, to be boastful, to live in your status. He goes on to describe it, to set your hope on the uncertainty of riches. To be haughty is to live in such a way, in such arrogance, in such wealth, that you find yourself above others. I think the greatest example of this in my life for me was the first time I went to Uganda, uh, and I realized how people use the restroom in the villages of Uganda that I was in. There is a small hole in the ground about six inches in diameter, if I understand what diameter means. And you squat over that and try to aim well and keep it off your shoes. You know what it is. And then you clean yourself somehow, and then you move on. American, if someone said to you today, your plumbing is gone. We're digging a hole in the ground outside. We're going to put a concrete pad and a six-inch hole, and this is what you're going to use. What would your response be? I could never. Some of you are like, yeah, but you're watching those YouTube channels about off-grid living. <laughs> but most of you would say, I'm not giving up my throne. No siree. Uh-uh. Do you know who I am? Do you know where I live? I am the king of an enclosed space with a ceiling fan. No siree. Why? Because you're haughty. You're haughty. Your porcelain throne has made your bum soft and unable to deal with the true difficulties of life in which many people do. You're fearful to squat because you're haughty. And this is just a slightly humorous example of the reality of much of our lives. Do you not look at things and think, I could never, I would never, how could I ever? And yet those are things experienced by all of history. Maybe you tell yourself, I could never go days without showering. Welcome to the world before indoor plumbing existed. I could never live and sustain myself off of the same food day after day, only having the hope of maybe an occasional celebration. Welcome to the way the world existed. Welcome to the way the world exists for many. Christian, do not be haughty. Do not think because of your wealth you are above others. Nor set your hope on the uncertainty of riches like the man who builds his barn. Nor are you to set your hope that someday that more riches, that more wealth can fix all of the problems that you currently have. That your greatest problem is just that you don't have enough. He says, no, Christian, this is not how you are to live. But remember, the people he is speaking to are rich. He's saying, if you're rich, as Jesus said, woe to you, pain to you. Paul writes and he says, warn them of this. That they might become haughty. They might think they're better than other people because of their wealth. And they might set their hopes on those things and therefore choke themselves out from the truth of the gospel. But what are they to do? To be rich like him. To be rich like God. To be a godlike rich. He says that they are to set their hope on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy, who richly has given us all things, who mankind in Christianity have celebrated as people have pursued God with everything. What does the sweetness of an orange remind a believer? The sweetness and the grace of God. 
And a child who received one on Christmas many years ago was overwhelmed with the fact that he would be able to enjoy the sweetness of that orange. I don't know about you, but if I gave my kid oranges for Christmas, actually Lauren bought our kids bags of clementines for Christmas one year and they were stoked. My kids are broken. (laughs) They got lots of other things. If they would have just had that bag of clementines, I would have said, seriously? I know you guys are greedy with the clementines and now we each have our own bag, but this is all we've got? Just a little tiny orange? No. He says there should be a contentment, a thankfulness in all that he has richly provided you with. Not a discontentment because you don't have more. He has been the one who has given all provision. You ought to take joy, Christian. You ought not to feel guilty that God has given you much to enjoy. You ought to enjoy it and be thankful. Not dissatisfied, but content. As was already described in Timothy, that if you have food and shelter, if you have food and covering, with this you shall be content. With this you shall say everything beyond just being sustained and being clothed is a blessing beyond what I should imagine. This should be the Christian life. But as we are rich, we forget so. We become haughty. We set our hope on riches rather than on God who has given us everything to enjoy. So what are they to do? Verse 18, they are to do good. They are to be like him. They are to do good. They are to do good. They're to be rich in good works and to be generous and ready to share. What does it mean to be good? What does it mean to reflect Him, to do what God does? Be like Him, using your wealth and the time it provides to serve others. Notice He says, be rich in good works. What are good works? They're the labors of your time. Good works, those functions of your time. And He says, be those who are rich in good works. And even in our own world, and those we look at the real wealthy, we see that they do this. What, what happened to the robber barons? What happened to the really rich men in the Industrial Revolution that thought they owned the world like Rockefeller? They became philanthropists. They started giving all their money away, giving all their time away. Why? Because at the end of their lives, they realized, this can't satisfy me. There has to be something else. And hopefully they found Christ. For the very least, they found the deceitfulness of riches couldn't satisfy them and they were going to die. So they tried to give their time. The wealthy often seek to do this. They seek to satisfy themselves. They seek to please themselves that if they give of their time, they're doing good to the peons. But he says, Christian, you are a peon. And you need to recognize that. Be thankful to God for everything you have and let your time provided by your wealth be used for good works. Be used to serve others. Verse 18, they are to do good and to be rich in good works and to be generous and ready to share, not just your time, but your resources. What are you to do with your abundance of resources? Not just because you're wealthy, you have more free time, right? That's why Netflix and Amazon Prime and Disney Plus and all of these things didn't exist in the previous world, or the previous meaning the earlier world. It's these didn't exist. Why? Because people didn't have time to go, what's Joe doing? They're like, I've got to run a field. I've got to make sure my family has food. But we are rich and wealthy. We have time. And what do you do with it? Do you plan and purpose for your own leisure and recreation? Or do you serve others? He says, if you are rich, 
then do good. Be rich in good works. Be generous and ready to share. Not like the man who has the barn and builds it bigger. Not like the man who sees the barn and says, if I could only tear it down and have a bigger barn. But he says, be rich in good works and generous and ready to share. To hold your possessions, not with a closed hand, because you're fearful. Where do I put this? Where can we have it? But with an open hand, ready to use it to the glory of God. Be rich and ready to share. Verse 19, thus storing up for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Investing for the future. You're familiar with this term, right? We live in Minifee. The median age in Minifee is like 38. Do you know what happens when you turn 38? I'll tell you, because I turned 38 last year. You were like, I mean, this happens, people. I'm sorry. This is what you have to look forward to. Just kidding. Most of you are way older than that, like 40 almost. <laughs> In the middle of life, what happens? You start thinking about the reality of I could die. I stopped getting invited to weddings and I've started to be invited to my friend's parents' funerals. Life shifts. It becomes more real. All of a sudden, there's these little people surrounding you that you look at and say, oh no, I'm responsible for all of these humans? You start to question things about what will happen if I die? What happens if I fail? What happens if I don't do something? The realization of an investment becomes real to you. As a young church, I was thinking just this morning, as all these kids are walking down here, I thought seven years ago, this was a bunch of babies being pushed in strollers. And now they're adolescents. The worst time in life. And as they're living in that worst time in life, trying to figure out who they are, they're surrounded by people that love them and care for them in a church that's praying for them and hoping that God does more, seeking to invest in that generation. Faith Bible, I know you understand what investment means. I know many of you men lead your families in such a way that you are planning and purposing for what happens to them when I die or if I die. Where are they going to live? How am I going to get them in college? You know what investment means. Those are good investments. They cannot be your hope. They cannot be your hope. Your hope for your children is not that you store up wealth on earth so that they can relax and eat and drink and be merry. Because just like you, they might have their soul required of them. It is not bad to plan and purpose for them, to love your children as God loves you, to provide for them and to care for them, to sustain them. But as you know what investment means, what foundation are you investing on? Man, I know you don't randomly play the stock market. You don't just shoot at random stocks because they're low. But if a friend tells you, this one's going to go up, right? If a buddy at work says, you got to buy some Bitcoin, trust me on this one. What are you investing on? Your trust in that foundation. Your trust in that person. And he says, Christian, you must invest. Storing up for yourselves as a good foundation for the future. So that you may take hold of that which is truly life. That which is eternal. The parables help us. Jesus has other places where he tells the rich to be shrewd. 
to be those who use their investments for a purpose, those who grab their investments and invest with them for the purpose of bringing others to Christ, those who use their wealth for what? The freedom of time to serve others and the abundance of good to be generous with others for the proclamation and the truth of the gospel. Christian, if you hear anything this morning, please hear this. Woe to you who are rich. Woe to you. Don't be confused that your great prosperity is your hope. It is a danger. It is a grave danger. It is a great blessing given by God. And should you confuse that blessing as to be something for you and your family to store up, And to hold to that for generations you might eat, drink, and be merry. You will find yourself pained, comforted, and never satisfied. You see this around you. You see it in the extreme rich. You know they're never satisfied. You know it leads them to all kinds of deception. You can look around and see our society. What has wealth and prosperity done to us? has done a dual thing. God in His providence has used America in great ways. There is no greater giving that comes out of any country than America. When there are natural disasters and world disasters, more money flows out of America than any other country. That's a great thing. That's a huge blessing to the world. And that might be because America is not just a big group, or rather, is not just a big thing. It's a group of people. It might very well be that much of that money is coming out of the hands of Christians who love Christ and understand this and want to be rich and generous in good works. It might be that much is coming out of the super wealthy who have nothing better to do with their time and those grave moments that remind them of the death of life stirs in their hearts what will happen to me when I die or what would I feel like if I was in that position and rooted on their own selfishness, their own fear of judgment. They give out of fear. God is gracious to use both. He helps the poor because all resources are His. He gives them and takes them and puts them where He wants them. But Christian, in that same country that gives more than anyone, leads the world in immorality, proclaims to the world to kill their children for their own prosperity, divides and destroys the world now in the name of wealth and selfishness. And we could point the finger out there. We could say, this is someone else's problem. We could join the fight and say, I won't be part of this and I won't let anyone take my wealth from me. We could be haughty. And we could set our hope in the uncertainty of riches. Or we could know that God has blessed us, that he is rich and generous in good works, and not have the answers for the whole world, not able to fix every politician, not resting our hope on any platform or any foundation other than Christ. And calculating what we have in time and money, and being thoughtful and purposeful, 
Not in just how we could make more, but how we could use what we have to be a conduit of the gospel in the world. To be ready to serve. To be rich in good works. To be ready to share. To be generous with what he has given. We have our hope here because Christ has been generous and gracious with us. If you are rich, you are full. And if you are rich, it is easy for you to pursue laughter. And if you are rich, it is easy for you to use your money, your wealth, your time to grow in popularity. And next week, we're going to look at those three things that the rich need to struggle through. But this week, I just want you to hear clearly But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Father, we thank you that you are a God who is good and faithful. Lord, I I thank you. I preach this message not in fear. Uh, Not in fear of you and and by God's grace, not in fear of faith, Bible, ministry. Lord, I, I know many in our body who give generously to others who use their possessions to share with others. Father, I I know many men who plan and purpose for their family to give to missions and and to others and to your gospel. I I know that we are a church who is ready and eager to serve. I preach this, Father, not to condemn us, but to compel us to be so all the more. I pray, Father, for our own hearts that we would look to your word and see and ponder in your word and, and not look to our neighbors and satisfy that we are doing enough and that everything done is enough, but that we would rest our hope fully in you and that you have done all things. I pray, Father, though we are rich, you would help us because of your grace in the gospel to be poor in spirit. Though we have much to find joy in, I pray you would help us to be those that mourn over our sin. I pray, Father, that you would help us not to quickly pass over your words, but that we would live in an awareness of the danger and deceitfulness of riches. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.